0: Today is June 21st, 2020. Welcome to Common Ground. In response to the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, we've shut down our scheduled sermon series to discuss our commitment to building a just, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive gospel community. Today, our host is Lance Hurst, while Chantilly Mers pickett gives her testimony. Enjoy. I'd like to uh, just welcome Chantilly and Lance um, to the conversation uh, to lead us in a conversation today. As you all have known, we've completely deconstructed the service for the last several weeks in order that we could have um, some pretty intimate, some pretty straightforward, uh, it's really only scratching the surface, but it's quite necessary work um, to unpack some of our racial narratives um, towards healing, towards reconciliation, towards um, understanding. Um, and so uh, we're trying to have a committed time where we share our stories. And today, Lance and Chantilly are gonna be weaving a little bit of their stories. Lance as a white person who's queer and Chantilly as an Asian Pacific Islander who uh, I have some solidarity with, who often gets eth- uh, misunderstood uh, or, or, or mis- uh, misidentified, ethnically ambiguous people we are. Uh, and so we'll see today how those stories mesh together um, so I would love to welcome you all, and uh, uh, please, um, may the Lord be with you in your words today. Thank you.
1: It's Always good to see your faces and be with you each Sunday. Um, I just want to open us up in prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started. Spirit, thank you so much for this community and a place to heal, a place to belong, a place to love and be loved. I pray that you would... Um, Continue to speak to us through this service. Speak to us throughout the week and change us. Make us new. Um, make us more a reflection of love in the world. Amen. So I have some slides. So we're gonna. Um, I'm gonna try to be like tech savvy over here. Alrighty. So I think we're we're popping. Okay. So for years now, I've associated this word repentance in the big white letters here with following Jesus. Initially, this word um, and just this association with Jesus produced so much shame for me. I coupled this concept of repentance with the belief that I was inherently bad. But thank God for Brene Brown. You all are probably tired of hearing me talk about Brene Brown. I think I talk about her too much or maybe just enough, but... She's the one who's really helped me unpack the difference between guilt and shame. So this is how she frames them. So um, this is how she explains guilt. Guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. So I think words I want to highlight here for us are adaptive and helpful. So I think a lot of times we don't really think of guilt as helpful, but I want us to move forward with this as a key part of guilt. Whereas shame is this, it's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So the difference can be subtle, but it's really important to catch. Shame thinking often goes something like this. I'm the worst human. I can't believe I did that. I don't know why anybody would love me. I'm just not good enough. I'll never get it right. Whereas guilt thinking sounds different. Guilt is more like, Wow, I really messed up on that one and it doesn't really feel good, yet I can realize that I messed up, I can take responsibility, I can own up and apologize and find a way forward. I can figure out how to do better. Both are uncomfortable, but one of them disconnects us, which is shame, and the other has the power to connect us, which is guilt. So it's important to notice the difference between disconnecting feelings and connecting feelings. For me, I've spent a large part of my life living in shame spirals. And part of this was because I honestly believed that repentance was just an affirmation of my shame. I connected these ideas, they were deeply intertwined for me. But a large part of that wrestling um, has shifted my understanding. And there's been a lot of wise people who have helped me to get to this place. But I've started to see repentance differently. I would now understand repentance as a conversion of my inner life. It's something that transforms the way that I see, that I experience and interact with the world. And I would even say that it's oftentimes when I encounter and engage with new or different experiences from what I've known. And that actually starts this transformation on the inside. So sometimes it's the inside working its way out, and other times it's the outside working its way in. And what I love about Christianity is that our faith is filled with these stories of repentance, stories of people who are waking up to a new reality, to seeing the world in a different way. The book of Acts in particular, coming from a Pentecostal background, Acts was basically the Bible with some Jesus stories sprinkled in there. But Acts is filled with repentance stories that have literally transformed my life. Like, actually, Acts is one of the reasons why I'm an out and proud gay person, ironically. That's another story. But Acts begins with one of my favorite verses. This is Jesus talking, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth." So in this verse, we're at this part in the story where Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples again. Jesus leaves multiple times, right? He's risen, and now he's like, all right, it was good to hang out with y'all, I gotta go. But he leaves them with this promise before he leaves. He says that they're going to have power, they're going to receive this power once they experience the Holy Spirit in a new way. And with that power, they're going to be witnesses. They're going to be witnesses to the fact that their beloved anointed one, their Messiah, their Christ, Jesus, suffered. But that suffering meant something to them. To them, it meant that God actually suffers with humanity. So as the Acts story goes on, we don't just see the disciples telling others who God is. We also see the disciples were witnessing to God's Spirit in places that they didn't expect. They were seeing God at work where they didn't think they would find God at work. What happened here is the Spirit's power is actually helping them see God and the world. It's helping them see that God is already active in the world and they just get to join in. This is a really important shift. It's been a big shift in my own thinking. Seeing God's movement in the world requires change on our part because to be a witness of God's presence is to actually recognize that God is already at work in the world. This goes against what many of us were taught and certainly what I was taught I was taught that I'm the one who has found God and I have to go into the world and give God to people because I have God. People don't already have God, I have it. Being a witness is difficult because being a witness flips this idea on its head. Being a witness means that there are plenty of times when we realize that we are wrong as individuals and there are times when we realize that whole communities, whole groups of people are wrong. Because being a witness means we're seeing God at work and we are naming that. It means that we see God at work within us and around us. And getting it wrong is where it gets tricky, right? Because this is when it's really important to notice the shame in ourselves. Getting it wrong doesn't mean that we are forever cut off from connection. This is what shame thinking leads us to believe, that when we are wrong, we're no longer worthy, we're over. But getting it wrong is actually something that can lead to connection. Because the truth is, we all get it wrong sometimes. To be wrong is simply to be human. But here's where the difference is, right? We all have been guilty of believing things that were not true and that actually harmed people. But this is when we take the chance, when we take the opportunity, when we make the choice to actually lean into the discomfort of guilt. When we say, I'm going to choose guilt over shame here. This is when we need to say to ourselves, I see you, shame. I recognize that I'm feeling discomfort. The truth is though, that I am worthy of connection. I can see my behavior for what it is. I can learn, grow, and change. I believe that this moment that we're in in history right now is for us, particularly white folks, to do exactly this work. This moment is inviting repentance. It's actually screaming, I think, repentance. It's not being quiet. but. I want you to see with me, to imagine what this repentance would actually mean. It's a repentance that would have a lasting impact on the world that our children and our children's children inherit. If we remain in shame, though, we are only going to perpetuate the sins of our ancestors. The temptation in this moment is to believe that we are good to go and that we have no part to play in the moment. And I get it.
2: So when I um, was invited to share, think about guilt and shame in this conversation around race and our own racial narratives. I, like Lance, am indebted to Brene Brown. Um, In fact, when I met Lance and he said Pentecostal and Brene Brown, I was like, I love you. Can we be friends? (laughs) So I'm really honored to sort of weave my story in with lances and particularly when it centers on shame. um, Because for most of my life, I come to think um, that I think a lot of my life has been driven by shame. And let me explain um, that somehow or another growing up, I had internalized that I was never quite good enough, um, smart enough or worthy um, or worthy, or valuable. And I look back and I see that I had to work doubly hard to excel at anything I did. Um, I graduated high school as valedictorian. I, I went to a private, a liberal arts school called Pepperdine University and graduated like with honors there. I think I was, I was the first person in my family to actually complete college and my first, the first person in my family to um, go to graduate school. And even with all of these degrees, um, I still recall a moment when I was in my, uh, I was at church and I was graduating seminary and um, people were asking me, you know, what am I gonna do? And I said, you know, I think I might consider getting my PhD. And it was a black, a black woman, a black woman organizer and activist who looked at me straight in the eyes and said, sis, how many degrees do you need before you believe that you have something to contribute? And, and it was like this moment of, of someone seeing me, right, and, and, a, and a black woman seeing me and seeing and she goes, we're going to have to keep proving ourselves till the day we die. And we have to come to a point when we're going to say enough. I am enough, and so it, it it brought this sort of feeling of like I had to reckon with myself that so much of what I had done as as a um, as a young person, as a child, as a student, as a young adult um, was really trying to hide from a lot of shame that I had internalized. Um, it wasn't too long in my own childhood that, um, and I didn't have to look very far to know that we were both, we were immigrants and we were poor, and from the shame of not speaking proper English in school um, and teachers expecting very little from me, or the shame of of um, shopping at thrift stores, um, or the beat-up cars my mom used to drive us to school, Um, or that despite the fact that my mom worked two to three jobs, um, you know, we we had to rely on food stamps to get by. And I don't know if you've ever had to stand in line with food stamps, y'all, or EBT at a grocery store, or stand in line with a reduced lunch ticket at your school or your cafeteria, but it's a daily walk of shame. And I vowed as a child that I would hide this shame that I would hide the shame of being poor, I would hide the shame of being an immigrant, I would hide the shame of English being my second language, I would hide from the shame of not being white or not being American enough. And I did that and I did it so well by diminishing myself so that I could assimilate to like white dominant culture, you know, the way the Hollywood movies and actors and actresses looked like from the history books, from my teachers, from my white evangelical church, all of these pressed into me the message that to be good, to be worthy of love and belonging meant I had to be white. That I had to straighten my hair, that I had to stay out of the sun, that every degree I got, that I every test I passed with flying colors to be good meant that I'd be closer to being white. And this is like a um, a like even as I'm sharing this with you, like the emotions are like, like the feelings <laughs> like discomfort are rising in me um, because as a parent to multiracial children and I'll just sort of end here and pass it back to Lance is that this stuff runs so deep. I have, um, I have a two mostly white presenting daughters now and I cannot tell you like how I had thought I had dealt with all of this stuff until I had white presenting children and then people are asking if I'm the nanny, you know. Like people are wondering whose children these belong to. Um, I was literally in the South Bronx, and my and my um and my uh, and Layla, like I, I wish I I showed you all pictures of Layla when she was like under two. I mean, she's like like dirty blonde hair, fair fair skin, and um we're walking in the South Bronx, and and literally families are stopping. And just like admiring her. And they always say to my light skinned daughter, you know, how que bella, you know, que linda, que princesa. Um, you know, she's just so beautiful and so, you know, to me, I'm thinking she's light skinned, right? Like, but this family stopped and literally freaked out, wondering where her parent was. They literally stopped and were like, Dónde su mama. Wait, wait. Where's your parent? Like where what and they literally started looking all around. And I'm literally standing a foot with my daughter, foot from her, watching her, and they're like freak, and I let them freak out for like a couple minutes. And then I just say, Oh, yo soy, you know, yo soy su mamma. Like, you know, and 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 I was like, Oh, she's mine, you know, and they're just like, Oh, okay, you know, sorry, sorry, sorry. But it's just sort of like this constant reminder, you know um of of for me anyway of the some of the shame of like not being white but also the shame of like having a white presenting daughter and going will she ever be ashamed of me the way i was ashamed of my own mother growing up it's a little bit of me for now i'll pass it back to lance
1: It's so heavy, and for me, I remember my own slow awakening to racial injustice. As a child, um, I came from the Deep South, um, from a lower middle class family, but I knew that I was white, and I remember being taught the phrase early on, we don't see color in our family, and I knew that this was well-meaning, Um, But as I've woken up, the reality is I've learned that being colorblind actually just prevented me from being able to see the injustices that were right in front of me, that were based solely on the color of people's skin. Sleeping in this dream of colorblindness felt nice. It was nice for us white folks, right? It's easy. It's a comfortable story to live in that we live in this post-racial society. But the problem is, it's a nightmare for anyone who's not white. I don't remember the exact moment when I started waking up, but I do remember the moments of shock I felt. I felt shock when my friend Anthony, who's black, he was pulled over while driving home from work just because he looked like the person they were after. Fortunately, they didn't do anything other than slam him into his truck and handcuff him, but that was traumatic enough. Fortunately he survived. But I just remember being shocked and him saying, oh, I, I'm not surprised. Later I remember hearing a conversation between one of my professors that I loved so much and my academic advisor talking about white privilege and they were talking about it as a present reality and their words struck me because I I knew that white privilege was a real thing back in the day but like I said I was living in this post-racial myth. My unexamined inherited beliefs around race were being challenged by the lived experiences of people that I knew and loved. Fast forward a few years, I was in seminary and I was dating um, someone who was black. And I remember getting an email from our campus security saying that we should be on the alert that there was a tall, thin black man in his 20s that we should report to them if we saw him. That looked exactly like my boyfriend. And I thought, are people going to report my boyfriend who's not a student here if they see him walking on campus? What would happen if the cops came? This fear was something that I had never had to think about before, and yet it was normal for him. It was also in seminary when I discovered one of my favorite theologians, Monica Coleman. I know we've talked about process theology here before and Monica Coleman is deep in process theology. But for her, it is the launching place of really exposing the ways that we have an inherited theology that has continued to disempower people who are being abused. Especially for Monica Coleman, she centers her theology on black women, who she helped me realize they're not just subject oftentimes to classism, uh, always racism, but also sexism. They are at this intersection of multiple issues. It was also around that time when Beyonce's Lemonade album dropped. And I just remember seeing that album through the lens of Monica Coleman's words. Suddenly, Monica Coleman's words came to life through this song and poetry. This journey has required me to say that I was wrong. It has asked of me to be a listener, a disciple. The journey has asked of me to be a witness to God's Spirit a witness to Christ's suffering in the world right in front of me. The journey has asked me to be humble and humility isn't saying, well, I know nothing. Humility is saying, yes, I do know some things, but I don't know everything. How could I possibly? I'm going to and bound to be wrong. Therefore, I have to listen. I have to learn. And so through this whole process, I'm continuing to deal with my own inherited racism, right? So the truth that I think that we as white people have to hold on to is we can't pretend to be without racism. It's simply impossible in the world that we live in. But what we can do and what I can do is learn to be an anti-racist. I can learn to see my own beliefs and practices in light of how they impact people with less privilege than me. I can learn to see the ways that I benefit from and have benefited from policies, from stories that are told, and that we keep on telling, that we keep on perpetuating. And I can work to undo those stories within me. I can work to undo policies when I have the power to do so. At the end of the day, what I'm saying we can do is repent. We can be part of creating this more just and more beautiful, more grace-filled world because there really is enough room at this table of love for all of God's children. The trick is that to get to this table of love, we have to be willing to leave the table of white supremacy though.
2: So, when Lance says to leave the table of white supremacy, I'm like all about it. And if I'm gonna be honest, I've worked really hard to get me a seat at that white table. (laughs) Um, And not only did I feel, have I felt like I've worked hard to get a seat um, at the white folks table, but repentance for me um, as of late has been. Like realizing the ways that I have, I have not worked very hard at all to be accepted at the white folks table. And so let me tell you a little bit more about that. Um, So like this, this, this sort of reckoning or awakening um, that Lance has been sharing about like the benefits that his white skin has afforded him. um, I have benefited from internalizing whiteness in ways that white folks could see me as less threatening or less dangerous, or or from what I learned when I first went to um, a hair salon in the Bronx and a Dominican hairdresser said, I have good hair, good hair. And she goes, yeah, you don't have kinky hair, right? Um, and so like that meant, oh, so I didn't have, you know, black or Afro-Caribbean hair. And so there are benefits to being brown and ethnically ambiguous even though this reality makes me feel like, you know, I don't belong anywhere sometimes. I feel like I'm not white, I'm not Latinx, I'm not Black, I'm not Native American. And even Asians would look at me and say, ah, she's not one of us, right? So it's taken me years of denial um, of never feeling like I fit in anywhere. Um, but I also have skin privilege, right? Like. In America, when we're on a spectrum between pro-white and anti-black, I was raised in Hawaii in a brown and Asian Pacific Islander state that had deep anti-blackness. One of the first stories that I shared with you all was trying to scrub off my skin when I was a five-year-old because I was so dark from from being out in the sun all day. Um, That in Hawaii, in colonized places, there is hierarchies of skin color, and this runs really deep in our colonial history. And so, summed up, you know, when white is the standard, colorism ranks us by how close we are to white. Um, and so, for me, you know, when 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 Lance was talking about like shame, guilt, and repentance, I was like, yeah, um, there is inner work that I have to do um, that repent and to, and to repent from the, the years of denial that I've been in um, and the years of believing that if I just, you know, um, did the right things and participated in white communities and whiteness, that I would be accepted by whiteness, and then repentance for the ways in which I've internalized anti-blackness. Um, I, I still have to do the work of telling myself, I mean, this is real talk here. That it's okay Chantilly, to be in the sun longer than 10 minutes. I mean, that's just real. it's okay. it's okay because dark is still beautiful. you know i'm I'm still beautiful, dark is still beautiful. And so for me, um the invitation to share our stories, I know are also like really complex, um, but I, I think there's something really freeing and liberating um. To, to do to doing what you know Lance is doing what I'm doing, um, because I do believe that good news um, that liberation that salvation um, comes when we are just um, where we move from a place of denial um, into a place of just um, vulnerability and saying there are just stuff in me that I need to release myself of And there are stuff in the world that I mirror and reflect in some ugly ways. And there's also stuff in me that is like so beautiful and so redemptive and so um, like awesome. (laughs) Um, And so the good news is that I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey to unlearning and decolonizing whiteness that lives in me. And I'm not going to, I'm not like running anymore and not like ashamed anymore. And I'm honestly trying to, um, just like, say that I have benefited from, from the way that I talk from the way that I walk from the kind of hair that I have from the freaking $100,000 degree degrees that I have um, Like I benefit. Um, and there are ways that I'm harmed by not being white. And there are ways that I benefit from not being black in America. And when I live in this interstitial space, this sort of betwixt and between space, um, I am finally even having multiracial children, finally having to um, see the shame that I've carried for so long and to like, like what Lan says is like, like, hug my shame, name my shame, <laughs> right? Like don't keep shame hidden. And don't try to overcompensate for the shame. But like, the more I can face the shame, and the more I can embrace it, and the more I can talk openly about it in public spaces like this with other folks, um, the more I feel like we get we become free from it, you know. Um, and that shame no longer needs to be a driving force in my life, and nor yours, right? So if you're if you identify, or I should say, if you're racialized as Asian, if you're racialized as Latinx, or Caribbean, or Native American, or a non-Black person of color, I mean, I see you. I see you, right? And there's beauty, and there is a heritage, and there is an ancestry that you have that we have been taught to leave behind in order to accept and be assimilated into white culture. Right? There's songs, there's stories, there's rituals, right? there's spiritualities um, that I hope the invitation here, as we do anti-racism work, is to recover some of that. And I hope also in this beautiful experiment that we call Common Ground, that we would also be aware as brown folks, as Latinx, as um, Caribbean, as multiracial folks, Um, in ways that anti-blackness shows up and you know what I and this is one thing that I I, and the leadership will know like we will make mistakes with each other and you know I've made them and trust me if we had 10 more minutes I would go through all the moments where I was aware of my anti-blackness but we'll wait for small group time for that. There's only so much vulnerability I can offer you right now, folks. (laughs) Here's what the good news is, and here's what I believe about common ground, and I wouldn't say this lightly, I think there's a lot of grace here. I actually think that there's room to make mistakes here, that we're going to try to practice a calling in culture and not a calling out culture, that we are trying to heal ourselves from shame so that we're not going to practice shaming tactics as we learn together that we're going to be committed to grace and we're going to be committed that we're going to stumble our way to salvation and we're going to stumble our way into liberation but i I don't know any other way to do it that's the only way i've learned (laughs) so we're hugging shame we're naming our shame uh we're trying to heal from it um and the invitation is that we journey together to that
1: okay so As we come to the end here, there's an invitation on the table for all of us. And I think the invitation looks a little different depending on where we are in terms of social location and race. But nevertheless, I think we are all invited on this journey. I think especially for my white family and friends, it's waking up from our dreams that are familiar and safe. And I know that that's difficult. It's challenging to actually go on this journey of repentance. But I think that the choice before us is that we can um, stay safe and comfortable, or we can make the choice to actually believe our Black siblings. Because lives are at stake right now and have been for hundreds of years. And so the question today, I think, is do we hear the Spirit's call? Can we join in being a witness together to the crucified Christ in the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, the list goes on. Can we join in this moment of repentance? because surely there is a brighter future on the other side of repentance. Surely there is a place that we can get to where we can see that black lives don't just matter. Black lives are divine, sacred, worthy of care, worthy of love, belonging. And when we can get to that place, I think that we will actually be at a place where we're sitting at the right table where we're sitting at the table of love, where we can know that we are all divine, worthy of love, belonging, and care. And it's gonna take work. And I think it's work that we can do together. So as we close, I just wanna offer a prayer for us as we move forward on this journey. God who suffers with those who suffer, Would you help us to see you when we look into the eyes of our black siblings? Would you help us to hear you when we hear the cries for justice from our black siblings? Would you help us to know you when we take the time to really know our black siblings? Amen.